Welcome to The Simplicity Principle, the podcast which looks at how to keep it simple in a complex world. I'm Julia Hobsbawm, author of the book, The Simplicity Principle. This podcast connects you with some of the great voices in science, business, politics, and culture, and together we unpick some of society's all too pervasive complexity to identify what is good complexity and where we are better off embracing the success that only simplicity can bring. Simplicity is not all about candles and calm minimalism, although there's nothing wrong with that, but it is a vital way to cut through the complexity of modern times when everything from bureaucracy to tech to pandemics make our lives feel overwhelming and problematic. In this episode, we go into the world of the built environment, which for me epitomizes both simplicity and complexity. You remember the clean lines of a beautiful building and you cherish living and working in a well-designed and built community and our quality of life depend on it but you need visionaries to cut through the considerable complexity involved. And my guest today is one such architecture visionary. She's Sadie Morgan, OBE. She spent 25 years in architecture and she heads the award-winning architecture practice, DRMM. She also chairs the New Quality of Life Foundation. And as you will hear, simplicity is at the heart of her strategy to give us all a better quality of life. We're going to talk about simplicity and complexity in and around the built environment, quality of life, buildings, architecture. Aren't we, Sadie? Hello. We are. I'm really, really looking forward to it. So let me just ask a basic business question. In that 25 odd years of running an architecture business, has your life become more or less complex complicated or has it more or less stayed the same no it's become more simple but I think that's age and experience and the ability to edit out the things that aren't important so the sort of complexity of architecture is incredibly complex there's a lot of moving parts it needs a lot of people to make it happen and in order to I think in the end deliver something that has real quality and real efficacy and I suppose follow the kind of ethos that we always have as a practice which is to make architecture that's socially useful that's transformational then you have to make sure that you really boil it down to its essence and that's something that's incredibly difficult to do when you're young you're enthusiastic you want to throw all your ideas in so I think as time goes on you learn to sort of pick the things that really matter. What about the environment, though, the regulatory environment, the operational environment, the business environment? Has that got more simple? I can't believe it has in the last 25 years, but tell me otherwise. No, it's got more complex. I think if you, especially in residential architecture, particularly recently, of course, with the awful Grenfell tragedy, you know, that's meant a whole new look at how regulations are not only put in place, but how they're fed back through the supply chain. So the need to comply to a very, very strict set of codes, regulations, is something that is ever-changing and actually quite difficult to sort of keep on top of. Is that partly because an architect is only ever a moving part in a much bigger ecosystem in order to get a building up? I mean, could you just unpick the players, if you like, into, say, building social housing, 
for several hundred people. What? How many entities really go into that? There's a huge amount of stakeholders, whether it be the people who are actually going to live in your buildings, <laughs> the local authorities, the consultant team that you need to put together a building, you know, mechanical and engineers, the engineers, the highways, environment agencies, you know, there's a whole, the planning system, there's a whole load of people <laughs> and organisations that you need to sort of curate and bring along in order to make great architecture. I always say when it comes to Hastings Pier, which is a project that won us the Sterling Prize a couple of years ago, that we were the curators. We were we didn't really design that project necessarily. We just sort of put together all the parts and that was something that is the same with much of the work we do. You know, it's a sort of thread that runs through architects curate we have an orchestra in front of us and we need to sort of pull out the bits that hum and that make sure that you have a sort of wonderful sound at the end of it and is that wonderful sound essentially good operational that my framing of it would be simplicity that everything works well both in the pre-build process and during the build and indeed afterwards I mean surely the essence of success is a simplicity that everybody knows at any given time what's happening. Isn't that part of what you call curating and conducting, that there's a centralised simplicity controller in this and that that's you? I mean, it's not always the architect. I mean, I think that role relies on different people throughout the process. I think the architect does a lot of it, a lot, you know, in terms of the process that the architect is running a considerable a considerable part of it, but the client and others take that central role at different times throughout the process. But I think that um, it's really important to have that sense of simplicity and that the minute you over, it becomes over complex is the minute you lose the essence of what makes it wonderful. So I think the essence of a great building is that it has a soul. And when you experience that building, you really feel it kind of uplifts you in a way, it moves you in a way that I think is reflective of the energy and effort that goes into it. So when you go to Hastings Pier, you really feel that it has uh, soul. You really feel moved by it. And yes, it's because you're standing at the end of the pier and you're looking out into the sea and you can feel the wind and the, the elements. But there's something else. There's something more to it. And I think that it has an energy that has come from the extraordinary amount of people that were part of the process and the extraordinary amount of kind of energy and love and commitment that made that project happen. I'm a great believer that there's something in that. And in order to get that extraordinary sense of place and meaning I think it's very much part of a process that has taken the essence of what is needed in that community in particular. I might have to play devil's advocate to my own argument and say what you've described sounds quite complex actually harnessing thousands of people's views and creating a sort of a beauty which in itself is simple, but out of complexity. Is it about harnessing these two sides a bit like a battle between the elements? I think it might be. Of course, there are a huge amount of different views and wishes. So there's 10,000 people who put money in to sort of to fund, help fund Hastings Pier. Pretty much a, a huge percentage of those had something to say about what they wanted. Now, in the end, we decided that you couldn't fulfill everybody's wishes you know it was impossible to deliver a project that fulfilled however many thousands of people's ideas what would the best thing to do well the best thing to do is to leave 
a sort of ground plane on top of which you could have any activity that you want. So we made a really well-serviced deck, a beautiful deck that had the ability to host a whole range of different activities from performances to exhibitions. And in that way, we hope that rather than just create a building that didn't necessarily fulfill or have the ability to fulfill all these different wonderfully creative ideas, we would allow a simple open space. I love her vivid and honest descriptions of Hastings Pier, which won the coveted Sterling Prize, and how it distilled a wide-ranging consultation with many thousands of residents into a simple, central, blank canvas, a space. We're going to go back to Sadie now, not looking at the upside of architecture, but of the downside. What happens when the central stewardship involved in the building collapses? This is what happened around the tragedy of Grenfell Tower. Where, I asked Sadie, was the stewardship and how much of a problem was the lack of it? Yes, it is a problem. Whether or not that's kind of part and parcel of why this awful tragedy happened, I mean, one would assume that it it is. But I think that the, the long-term stewardship of any building is something that we've lost sight of. And, you know, you often have developers who build their buildings, ask the community what it is they want, ask the residents what it is they want, suggest that they've achieved all of those things and then thank you very much and move off and kind of leave the project there, take their profit and move. I'm not, that's not saying that that's not a model that can't work. But I think if you really want to go back to the sort of how buildings, how great spaces, how the built environment really does kind of develop over time, you need to look at the great estates whether it be in London or the kind of peabodies of the world who have a long-term investment in the buildings that they build and the communities that they create. And that's something that the building industry is absolutely definitely beginning to understand. Those who invest in our infrastructure and our buildings are beginning to understand that it isn't just about the kind of short-term wins. It's really about if you want to get value over time, and that's not just financial value, but social value. You can do that by making sure that you are part and parcel of the process for a long period of time. One of the things that strikes me as so romantic about building and architecture and the built environment is what the great campaigner and commentator Jane Jacobs used to say. And I've just got a couple of quotes for you, and I wondered what you think about them. She says that by its nature, the metropolis provides what otherwise could be given only by traveling, namely the strange. So that in some ways, great building and design has to harness mystery and complexity, but to do so in a very satisfying, simple way. Would you agree with that? The most wonderful thing about being in an environment that's been well thought through is that it often means that it can be overlaid with life. And life is what brings all of that wonderful richness and excitement and delight. And, you know, the research that we've done for the Quality of Life Foundation, you know, that sort of sense of fun and delight is one of the things that's been highlighted as important. So the built environment acts as a backdrop if it is simple and sturdy and robust, then it can take all that a big metropolis will throw at it. 
So a lot of my values and those that have kind of driven me throughout my professional career come from my upbringing. So I was brought up in a community that was started by my grandfather in the late 40s. He was a, a member of the Communist Party. He lost his brother when he was 18 years old in the war and it profoundly changed the way that he felt we should live our lives. So it was an experiment. And by the time I was born, it had been running for 20 years or so. The most wonderful thing about it was that you didn't rely on your parents. It wasn't, you weren't brought up in a kind of by a nuclear family. You were brought up in an incredible environment surrounded by a lot of really amazing people, all of whom would input in your upbringing. So I lived below a nuclear physicist who would do all my maths homework. I, you know, had secret fags and learned all I needed to not know about relationships with the women who ran the bar. And, uh, you know, so there was a mix. There was a real mix of people. And But from a very early age, I also learned how to look after people. So I'd come home from the age of six from primary school and look after my great-grandmother. You know, I would make her tea. I would push her around in her wheelchair. She died age 111. She was the oldest woman in Great Britain. She was incredible. She still drank a Dubonnet every night. She was the first female headmistress in the UK. So you grew up in a community and you became really the architect of community by shaping the way communities created. Is that what led you to want to create the Quality of Life Foundation, that you'd grown up in a commune and you'd, you wanted a sort of quality of life that eludes many of us, that sense of community? Yes, what I really wanted to do is understand what actually mattered what matters to people, what, what improves the quality of your life and how can the built environment make a difference to that? How with the tools that I have within the profession that I operate within, are there is there something that we could do better? So we are asked by the government to deliver 300,000 homes a year. And in doing so, we need to make sure that we're delivering homes that people want to live in. I think that as an architect, the debate often is polarized around what it looks like the aesthetics you know should you have a pitched roof should you know should you have a flat roof do you live in a modern house do you live in a traditional house well actually I was thinking does that really matter in the end I know that's a terrible thing as an architect to say (laughs) but it was a very simple question that you ask what matters now why did you distill the enormity and the variety and the limitlessness of of the built environment into that one simple question. What was that about? That was about really trying to understand what it was about my life, the things that had happened to me and the, and the extraordinary impact that living communally offered and how to distill that in a way that you could replicate it over time. So I don't think anybody actually asks the general public What is it about your built environment that improves your life? Architects are notoriously bad at actually really understanding, I think, what people want. We've become a little bit disconnected. Uh, That's not to say that's true of everybody, but I think that we need to spend a, a lot more time actually understanding actually what it is what people want. And one of the interesting things when we started the Quality of Life Foundation to really try to understand the essence, what is it that actually makes it difference? What actually is it about our built environment that can improve your quality of life? What are those things? We did a literature review. The most interesting thing about it was the fact that the outcome of the research was that no one has actually asked people 
<laughs> and so all were kind of fabulous. And there's a lot of incredibly detailed, thoughtful responses about those things that matter. But nobody had really asked the kind of general public. One of the things that we've done since the literature review is do exactly that, go on a nationwide research to ask people what it is you know, that affects and improves the quality of life. And the Quality of Life Foundation is really trying to ask questions before you even begin to think about making buildings. So it's not about making a choice about whether or not you want pitch roof or a flat roof. It's really trying to dig down into understanding what are those things that really, really matter. So that was Sadie Morgan, who I've got to know when she asked me to become a trustee of her Quality of Life Foundation, and very happy I am to be involved with it too. For me, the simplicity principle is all about this essential and simple question that Sadie returned to again and again in her interview. What matters? Whatever you're doing, whatever your work is, whatever your life is, what matters to you? If you ask that simple question, you're likely to deliver clean, good, meaningful results. In the next episode, we look at what really works for people from the perspective of a writer and an entrepreneur. My simplicity principle is that the amount of time you spend not working is as valuable as the amount of time you spend actually working. My simplicity principle is not having a to-do list. That's writer and foodie Wendell Stevenson and entrepreneur and techie Tom Adeyula talking about our next topic, the real world and how we get stuff done. This has been an Editorial Intelligence production, edited by George McDonough. I'm Julia Hobsbawm, and if you'd like to know more about The Simplicity Principle and the book and the webinars, please head to simplicityprinciple.info. But in the meantime, thank you for listening, and do join me again.